Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Thanks for joining us today. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Douglas Waite. Douglas Waite, MD, FAAP, is the Vice Chair of the Board of Directors for FASD United. He is the Chief of Developmental Pediatrics of the Bronx Care Health System and an Assistant Professor in Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center. Previously, Dr. Waite served as medical director of the Children's Village, a community foster care agency and residential treatment center established in 1851, located in Harlem, the Bronx, and Dobbs Ferry, New York. He has used time caring for children at the Keith Haring Clinic as an opportunity to teach medical students and pediatric residents the challenges of providing comprehensive medical care the children in foster care, and in the juvenile justice system. Dr. Waite is an assistant clinical professor of pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine, Mount Sinai Hospital, and he was elected one of 10 national FASD champions by the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2016. He sits on the National Mental Health Advisory Board of the Child Welfare League of America, and he is a member of the Society of Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics. Dr. Waite has special interests in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the effects of child abuse and neglect upon child development. I'm so honored to be speaking with Dr. Waite today. Welcome to FASD Hope. I am so excited to have today's guest speak with us. I think he is such a pioneer in FASD. He, the work that he is doing is tremendous. And most importantly, we hear from so many listeners that just need help and need direction. And our guest today is someone who can provide that in addition to sharing his experience as a professional uh, working with individuals and families with FASD. I am honored to have on FASD Hope today, Dr. Douglas Waite. Dr. Waite, welcome to FASD Hope. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks for having me, and thanks for um, raising awareness about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Thank you. Thank you. And I am just so honored to have you on FASD Hope. Dr. Waite, because of the incredible work that you're doing, would you mind sharing with our audience your, your background and how you got into FASD and, and how you got to where you are now? Um, yes, and I, I, I don't see myself as a pioneer. I see myself as someone who came into awareness of FASD by necessity. Um, I worked for about 20 years as a medical director of a foster care clinic um, several clinics that I built in the New York City area. And I quickly became aware, especially among the kids I was caring for in residential treatment centers, that there's a group of children that were usually adopted by what appeared to be 
excellent families, very loving families who gave them a nurturing environment from a very early age, often from birth, who progressed to have these, maybe had some developmental delays, but the big thing that began to outshine everything else were behavioral issues that occurred not only at the home, but in school, often leading to early suspensions, repetition of grades, and like first or second grade. So I was seeing a kind of malignant trajectory, a difficult process where kids were not being able to do what was being asked of them. And in most cases, were really being labeled as being kids that um, had behavioral issues. I couldn't understand that. I knew a lot about psychiatric illness um, as a general pediatrician, but I couldn't understand what was going on with this group of kids. They didn't have histories of trauma that might help explain this. So I remembered a 10 second picture that someone threw up when I was in medical school of a child with fetal alcohol syndrome. I didn't get any training on that in pediatric residency. And I went back and looked at this. And as I began reading about fetal alcohol syndrome, and more importantly, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, I became aware that this is what's going on. Um, the things that I was seeing in front of me were things that parents have been grappling with all through their child's life, in many cases looking for help, not getting it, and the child just ended up spiraling downward and the family felt helpless. And um, it made me feel helpless, and it made the psychiatrist I was working with feel helpless. It made people who were working with the kids feel helpless. And ultimately, it led to people blaming the child for making decisions that it became, has become clear to me over the course of time. They did not have the ability to, to, to make decisions. They were acting without that period of choice that many of us assume kids have the ability to do. Um, that ability to make choices is a developmental process. And that process in many kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders gets stunted or ha is difficult in use of everyday life. So I learned about this and that was probably maybe 20 years ago. And since that time, I've been trying to raise awareness among my pediatric colleagues, but also among the child welfare and um, the child welfare field, because we know that many children who have prenatal alcohol and substance exposure come into um, foster care because of um, parental substance use, and that therefore many children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders are in foster care, but usually are not diagnosed. Um, most of the people that get referred to me for evaluations are by adoptive parents or foster care agencies. So that's kind of how I came into this. Um, I, I see myself um, as someone who is, uh, works with families day to day in a clinic. I don't do research, I write, I do advocacy work like we're doing now. I give presentations with my colleagues who do do research. And I work with the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC on raising awareness among pediatricians, among people in general. Um, but um, I, I really see this as something that uh, I try to bring my best to when I'm seeing a child in the clinic, um, hearing what's going on from the parent and the child and seeing how we can problem solve. I think that's really where much of the research that's being done in the, um, the research centers, and to some extent, even in a lot of the FASD specialty clinics, we make a diagnosis, but we don't do the next step, which is where are we gonna go from here? And I think that's 
where parents come to us for. They come to us for what's gonna, what does this mean for my child? What are we gonna do differently? How can you help my child? How does this diagnosis help my child? And I think until we get to a good answer for that, a good pathway like we might have for a child diagnosed with autism, we're gonna leave families feeling um, helpless. And, and probably the most important person who feels helpless is the child because um, they do not understand what's going on, why they do these things when people ask them, why did you do that? And so I, I think we have a lot of work ahead of us, but um, I, I find um, hope in this, in just working with the families who, who really uh, are so dedicated to their children that they, um, they find pathways to get the help that they need in most cases. And Dr. Wei, I'm so thankful you're, you're bringing this up about how many families, when they get the diagnosis, unfortunately, they're not given the next steps, or maybe they're given partial steps, like partial, okay, here's maybe something you can do, but they're not given, like you said, if we're talking about another developmental disability, another brain-based diagnosis, such as autism, there's usually a, a clinical pathway to, okay, here's, here's what you do. And unfortunately, so many families and so many parent advocates have expressed that frustration that I have the diagnosis, but then I don't know what to do after that. So th that is something we're going to address in this conversation um, because it's such an important topic. I'm, I'm really thankful that you're out there doing this, Dr. Waite, because as a, as a parent who needed to hear what you have to say and needed to hear, you know, needed I needed to have your clinic 15 years ago, even, you know, 17, 18 years ago. Uh, I'm just so thankful that you're, you're out there and that you are spreading awareness and you're advocating while you are in the trenches of, you know, having an FASD clinic and diagnosing children and, and, and teens. Before we talk about this part of our conversation, which I'm calling critical information, but I think what we're talking about today is really critical information for listeners and for parents and even individuals living with FASD. Before we talk about that, let's just talk about some of the key points of your career uh, that have stood out to you that you'd like to share with our listeners before we, uh, we start bringing in this critical information. Well, I think that um, I started out in general pediatric practice on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, um, but I always really wanted to work with children and families that had um, issues that might be impacting the child's development and health, like social um, determinants of health. And um, I'd gone to social work school briefly before I went to medical school and ended up leaving private practice. Um, I loved private practice. I loved my patients and felt good about what I was doing, but I felt like I should be volunteering, um, doing other work. And so I ended up um, doing, spending some time in a child um, abuse diagnostic clinic that was more for gaining forensic information for courts in cases of suspected child abuse, but realized I really wanted to take care of the kids after they came into care. And I ended up switching and moving into foster care um, work, which, was really a major um, period of growth for me professionally. I, I think I had not had any experience with this except as a, a social worker where I worked for, for a short period of time as an intern. 
And we don't get exposed to this in medical school. So I think the care of children in foster care is exceptionally important. I'm um, a member of the executive committee for the American County Pediatrics on, uh, child, uh, on foster care, adoption and kinship care. So this is an area that's very important to me in my sense of professional identity. FASDs, fetal spectrum disorders, or whatever you want to call this, is a word to describe the constellation of challenges that a child has developmentally, behaviorally, and just in the process of navigating life, the life course, that we can begin to use to, to understand those challenges, and by understanding them, how to best support the challenges in, in areas of disability to help them grow into the best they can be. And so for me, the diagnosis is really just a stepping stone to this. And one of the obstacles to getting care for kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, as everybody listening to this podcast knows, is getting a diagnosis because there's so few people who feel um, qualified or have knowledge about this in the professional field. So one area that we're working on is trying to raise that awareness. But getting the diagnosis is, as we were just saying, is just a stepping stone toward the next step of what are we going to do next? And um, I think as a professional, one of the areas that I find I enjoy is being in that ride with the family. Um, it's an uncomfortable place to be because you feel that the, the family's pain, you you feel their frustrations, um, but you know, as an outsider, being in that car going down the road with the child at the front of the the car, um, I think it, it gives a perspective and an ability to give support in a way that oftentimes, when you're in the home with that child, feels like you're alone in the world. And so, for me, professionally, I. I find that that is something that means a lot, not only to me, but I, I, I feel it means something to my patients. And maybe one of the things that is most important about bringing a diagnosis for any child with a developmental disability is being able to join the family in that process through the ups and downs and through the process of trying to get support services. So I, I think those kind, that kind of traces out where I am now and how I see myself working every day when I go into the clinic and working and seeing patients that come in, um, trying to bring the best I can to what's in front of me, trying to problem solve. And in, in most cases, in, in many cases with kids with disabilities, there's not a lot medically I can do. I can tweak medications to try and improve behaviors, but I can't cure disabilities. And so in many cases, a lot of times this is just being with a child and the family. That's one of the most important things that I think I do. Yes. And Dr. Waite, I, I share this often, but I am taking notes rapidly as you're talking because everything you're saying is just resonating with me as a parent and as a, you know, as a parent advocate, and I know this is resonating with so many of our listeners because so many of our listeners are, are still on this road and knowing that a doctor, you know, even though you may not physically be near them, you know, this, this podcast is heard around the world, knowing that you are this wonderful FASD clinician, that that is one of your primary goals is to 
be on this road with us. My goodness, Dr. Waite, that, that makes me feel less isolated. And I know that will make other parents and individuals feel less isolated, knowing that you as a clinician, as a medical doctor, you want to be on this road with us. And, and I know you get it because it's an uncomfortable road. You know, people who don't understand this journey will say, oh, well, you know, there'll be some, you know, it's okay. Things, things will be okay. There are great moments on this journey. There are wonderful moments on this journey. However, there are also some very heartbreaking moments on this journey. So to know that you recognize that and that you have empathy for families, that right there, Dr. Waite, just, it's giving me goosebumps. It really is. And, and I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing and, and for that feedback that you're sharing as, as a clinician. So I had the honor of hearing you at the Arkansas Nun for Nine online conference back in November. And you talked a lot about what we're talking about now. Um, and, and again, before we, we go into our, our information for families and parents, are there any other points that you wanted to share from that online conference before we go deeper into our conversation? Well, I think one of the things I was trying to talk about in the Arkansas um, presentation I gave was really trying to answer a question that the person who was putting together the, the conference asked me, where are the services? And I think this is something that I grapple with every day. This is something that the patients that I see uh, are always asking me. And one of the uncomfortable things about being a, a physician, working with kids in disabilities in general, you know, developmental disabilities in general, but maybe even especially in FASD, children that have um, FASD, is this feeling of not being a professional, being, you know, somebody who is, is maybe has good intentions, but doesn't have a pathway because there aren't many pathways for, for families and children with FASDs. And so I, I think that getting the services often means cobbling together things piecemeal. But one of the things that's recurrent that I find in my practice is that many of the children's issues with behavior are often accompanied by underlying learning issues or developmental issues that are overlooked by the school. And so many of the behavioral issues that come out are the focus of what's going on in the school that typically are inattention, hyperactivity, <laughs> maybe inappropriate behavior. Um, but when they do psychological testing, the child appears to have normal intellectual abilities, so they should be able to do the work if only they tried harder. But no one's really looking at this other section that I think is probably one of the core areas of difficulties in, in children suffering from an FASD is adaptive function, the ability to complete day-to-day age-appropriate tasks. For example, we can expect a five-year-old to need a little bit of help getting dressed. By 10 years old, we expect them to be able to get dressed, brush your teeth, get ready for the school bus. Um, many kids that have an FASD or other uh, developmental disabilities can't do that. And if we're expecting that 10-year-old who's really got a five-year ability inside of him 
to do those things, we're having unrealistic expectations. So one of the things that happens very commonly in schools that leads to failures in school academically and also to behavioral issues that accompany that because of frustration and feeling of inadequacy, inability to do what their school's asking them is, um, are, are these behavioral issues that become the focus of things that people try giving medications for without seeing the underlying neurological brain-based problem that's the core of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So one of the things I think is recognizing and describing, identifying those areas that are often not tested for, like adaptive function, but also auditory processing, hearing it, getting it. Many times children need repetition, 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 memory. They might remember it one day, forget it the next. All of these things that um, often look like willful, will, like a child is willfully not following through with, but that are the core of what we see um, in children that struggle with an FASD. So brain-based issues that are often missed by the school, often not understood by parents, again, appearing like oppositional defiant behaviors. I hate the diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder. I think that describes how adults are experiencing a child. They don't describe why a child might be having, why a child's difficulties might be leading into this kind of so-called oppositional defiant attitude. So I think when I hear that, that means to me that people aren't understanding what's going on with the kid. Um, so um, that is one piece. And then the second piece is this hurdle that we have in our society with trying to make people aware that you can be very intelligent, but not be able to show what you know. So this gap between what we call developmental pediatrics ability and achievement. So an, an example is a patient I had who came to me as a young adult who um, has an IQ of 130. But when you look at his adaptive function, it's 60. So 130 is extremely high. 60 is low. And he would describe to me how he struggled through the private school system in the Upper East Side Manhattan and couldn't understand what his teachers were saying. He couldn't get what his friends were saying and had difficulties just carrying conversations, simple day-to-day -day stuff, despite being incredibly intelligent. So I, I think this part of just getting through the day, these day-to-day -day tasks are often overlooked and blamed on a child being lazy or disorganized when that's exactly the point. <laughs> and we miss the point, even though it's staring us in the face. It's much easier to blame the child or the parents. As a parent, I just... Again, so much of what you're saying, Dr. Waite, is resonating with me. The, the comment you made about, you know, you can't stand the ODD diagnosis, yet we know so many of our children get that diagnosis, you know, as a precursor to FASD. And, and the fact that we're making strides in the diagnosis and getting diagnosed diagnostician clinics going, but yet we don't have those pathways afterwards. The fact that you're addressing this and, and that this is a priority for you and that this we hope will be a priority, you know, around the country and around the world. It, it's so true. We often look and even clinically, we look at our children through that developmental must do stage versus, like you said, that brain based 
ability, especially with adaptive functioning. So I'm so thankful you're saying this, Dr. Waite. And I am writing notes. So our listeners, when we share your episode and we share our social media posts, we will, I will have visuals of, of our discussion for our listeners so that they can see these important points. One thing I would say just a second, Natalie, is that sure. I would say to that is when I hear defiant or he's being oppositional, I like to tr- try to turn this around. This is like a stereotypical thing we talk about in disability um, and people who work with ch- children and adults with disabilities is not that they won't, but they can't. Yes. So begin to see this as an area that needs support, which is the core of what a disability is. A disability means you have an area of challenge. You, If you're given support, you can be lifted up a little bit, right? And so I think that shift in thinking is one of the most important things we do when we begin to talk about a diagnosis of an FASD. Yes. And, and I can personally say, Dr. Wade, that once my husband and I made that shift in thinking from not our son won't do something or wouldn't do something, but he could not, whether, you know, he physically could not, or his brain could not allow him to do it. Then it really puts the perspective of this is a brain-based whole body diagnosis. And it put the responsibility on us as parents to seek training. And we did, you know, my husband and I, uh, we, we saw our training through facets, but there, there is training available for parents, caregivers, educators, professionals about FASD and brain-based diagnoses, you know, not just facets, other organizations as well, and other individuals. So I think that training component on behalf of the family or the caregiver's point is so important because then you can make that shift from thinking they wouldn't to, okay, they're not able to. And like you said, how can we best support that child, teen, individual that has that FASD or brain-based diagnosis? So I'd like to share, you know, just from my personal experience that getting that training research, and it's not just a one-time thing. FASD and developmental disabilities are a lifelong condition. You have to stay on that education lifelong as well, I think personally, because as your loved one reaches different chronological stages and ages, so are different different challenges that come about, you know, and I can say that as the mom of a of a son who's almost 20, you know, we're experiencing challenges now that, oh, my goodness, we wouldn't even had thought about 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So I, I'm really thankful that you're, you're mentioning this. So, Dr. Waite, you and I, prior to recording, we had this discussion when I took my holiday sabbatical, when I took my Christmas sabbatical. I received probably about five to seven emails, messages from parents who were in very critical situations. And and I don't mean, um, I mean that, you know, either they had a diagnosis for their child and then something was happening where they were concerned their child was becoming unstable. They didn't know what to do. Or from listeners who had a child that had other diagnoses, but they suspected their child has an FASD and they didn't know where to go. So essentially, both both groups had the common theme of. I am in a situation that I think is critical and I don't know where to go. I consider you to be the expert 
on this type of situation because you see families like this every day in your clinic. What feedback do you have for those listeners? Almost just like a, a basic, okay, if, if you suspect, then here, here's kind of like a little general plan of, of, of what you could do. And if it's confirmed, if you have the diagnosis, like we're talking about, you have that stepping stone, but now you need to take another step where, where can they go? So uh, <laughs> I guess to break it down, what steps can you recommend for families who are concerned and, and need that further help for their, their child or their loved one? Yeah. So I think there's um, several parts to the question. I think many, look, we know most children that have an FASD are never diagnosed. And so there are many, many children who go through crises, behavioral crises, or issues that throw the family in crisis that may have FASD that are never, have never been diagnosed. Um, so, so that's one piece is, you know, trying to weed these things out. It's very difficult because psychiatrists don't, don't screen for prenatal alcohol exposure. And probably most of the psychiatrists I've worked with had the least knowledge of, of the effects of alcohol on, on um, behavior and development. And I'm not saying that to diss them as much as to say that this has just not been on the map. Um, so I, I think, you know, if we begin to talk about breaking this down into diagnosis and then treatment, and then within treatment, what do we do in specific crises? Those are different areas of um, of attention that, that I think we need to split apart because otherwise it's an overwhelming um, thing to think about, um, which is often the way families feel because many, many times they haven't gotten a diagnosis or they've gotten psychiatric diagnoses, usually about five different psychiatric diagnoses, and their child's on medications and they're still getting expelled from school or hitting the teacher or running out of school or starting fires at home, whatever. Um, so there's always these, these, this complexity to it. But I think getting a diagnosis begins to set the stage for what the kinds of areas of challenge that we were talking about previously. When there's a crisis or when there's specific er issues that seem to be getting worse with a child, I always have to step back and look at, are, is this happening because we're expecting a child to do things beyond their capability. Um, if I was going to work every day and my boss was yelling at me because I wasn't doing something right, I would either quit my j job, which is most likely what I would do, or I'd act up at work, right? And so I think many times when children are faced with a situation that they have to go to every day, which is what school is, in front of other kids where in many cases they are on stage and other kids see what's going on with them and they're having difficulties, it's, it's very easy to see why someone would have behavioral issues in school. Um, if I'm having a difficult job and I go home, I'm often going to carry that frustration to home with me. So I, I think that many of the issues at home oftentimes can be helped if we begin to look at what's going on in the school and what kind of support services are happening in school. 
Having said that, many times kids, even with support services in school, with the school is right on target with this child, they get the child, the parents are on target, they get the child, they're setting consistent limits, they have consistent routines. Um, all of those things are in place. Many times we do need medications because one of the primary challenges I find that kids um, with really all neurodevelopmental disorders, but especially with, um, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, is issues with emotional behavioral regulation. And for this reason, they often look like kids who have, you know, what we see in kids who are older that have bipolar disorder. They have this lability of up and down and their outbursts and their frustrations with themselves. They go down and curse themselves um, inwardly often or lash out outwardly. So this kind of dysregulation is one of the core features. And so I think sometimes medications that target emotional regulation, like what we use for bipolar disorder, can be helpful. Um, in addition to anxiety, there's a lot of anxiety that goes on, both because of feelings of inadequacy academically, socially, and in social interactions, um, and just an overall sense of self. So I think that anxiety and emotional behavioral ability are really important things to look at. So those are like the basic concrete blocks that I would look at initially. Beyond that, there are sometimes things that trigger these kind of crises. And um, so there's lots of causes for triggering crises. But most of the time, these are things that you need to look at individually and, and break them apart to help the family move, you know, get the services they need. Um, I think the main focus that we always have to have is safety, safety of the child, so they don't hurt themselves or anybody else and safety of the family. Because I know many of my families don't feel safe with their kids. Some of them lock their doors at night because they've woken up and seen their child standing over them, looking at them weird. Or, you know, there, there's lots of different things that my, my uh, patient's parents have lived through that, um, that they struggle with. And then, of course, there's always the specter of the, the child doing something that involves them with um, the law, e either through inappropriate behavior or through, you know, a, a criminal offense, somebody getting somebody, getting them to do something that they wouldn't normally do, or just doing something that they didn't think about the consequences of. So those are kind of the basic things that I think are common, but um, I, I think there's this, this begs the question, what can we have in place in, in, in before that happens? So if we find we're starting to get things are getting worse, we have some backup support. And there's pause there because I'm taking so many notes. <laughs> so oftentimes I've found in, in my personal experience, you know, my lived experience as a parent, that what can we have in place I've found, especially since our son is older, I've found the best information has come from other parents of children, teens, young adults with an FASD, because like we were discussing before we started recording, oftentimes there are either so many hoops that you have to go through to receive services, or there just are not services out there and you have to you know, create an informal support, create something. So getting to that point, Dr. Waite, 
what, what are those next steps? How can we as parents say, okay, we're identifying that there's a situation, there's something that needs to, we have critical, something that needs critical attention. I found looking to state organizations and then, you know, we have global listeners. So I know that in other countries there, there are definitely FASD organizations. What would be those next steps you recommend or from your clinical experience that you've seen your patients do to start getting, like you said, FASD diagnosis is that stepping stone to start to go to that next stone, to start to keep moving forward? Well, I think um, FASD United, what was previously called NOFAS, is a good place to start, both for finding people who can make a diagnosis, but they also have many of the affiliate networks that you're talking about um, that are in 33 of the states and and many times um, can at least guide you to people within your state, even if you don't have an affiliate there. I know in Maine, there's been a push in the last year, we've basically several people have gotten together and created this incredible force um, that has met with legislators and gotten both senators to sign on to the FASD Respect Act. And they're going to be applying for affiliate. So they're not even an affiliate, but they joined together and did this. So, you know, look, parents of children with disabilities, you don't want to mess with them. They take everything to the mat and they get it done. So I encourage those parents to bind together. And I think parent support groups are very, very important. And I think it's important not only for support for you, in addition to what you were saying, Natalie, to to help uh, them know pathways to get services, but also because they can become a force in and of itself and at a local level and even at the state level. And you never know where that goes. You, You just don't. Doors open. You step into it, and sometimes it leads down a hallway you didn't even know was there. So uh, I really encourage people to join together. We're stronger in numbers than we are in our isolated homes. Um, you are correct. In all states, there are disability services that's under the federal mandate under Individual Disabilities Education Act. Theoretically, if you have a disability like autism or intellectual disability, you get services by the state that include services like going for job training, uh, subsidized supportive housing later on in life, um, services in the home when you're younger, um, disability services. The problem is, is that right now, most fetal alcohol spectrum disorders are not recognized by states, um, that, it, that it's only fetal alcohol syndrome. And and I can say in New York State, they use a diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, that classification that's based, that's 30 years old, you know, so we're not even dealing with people who are current. And this is New York State. And I'm trying to get a kid who's got by most recent diagnostic criteria, FAS, and they're denying it. So if you don't have FAS, like nine tenths of the kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder have, then you're even more out to wash. So people begin scrambling for these alternative diagnoses of autism, seeing if they can qualify the child for intellectual disability. It's ridiculous. So this is another area where we're stronger together. In Maryland, we did a presentation in Annapolis, I think like five years ago, that they subsequently invited us back and we met with the people who do disability determinations for that state. 
We presented there and about nine months later, the state of Maryland made disability eligible for all children with all FASDs. So this can be done. I mean, we're trying to do it in New York, which is its own nightmare, but you know, every state is different. And some states you push on a door and it opens easier than others. Um, so again, I think that these are really important. Getting those services are a lifeline to families. You know, so that is one of the stepping stones I would take as soon as you get a diagnosis and trying to get, see what your state qualifications are. And, and so that, that's a, a piece that I, I think is really important to look into. Um, in addition to having somebody that, you know, feels comfortable managing medication as needed or if needed. Absolutely. And I know from personal experience, we found our, our son's current practitioner, again, through a parent who made the recommendation, hey, this practitioner understands brain-based diagnoses and accompanying mental health diagnoses, you know, the comorbid diagnoses that we know. And she actually understood the FASD medication algorithm um, before she was even aware of it, just because she knew those nuances of having a brain-based diagnosis and that mood dysregulation. So again, I, we, we had heard about her through another parent, another educated parent. So I, I am definitely, Dr. Waite, when I promote this episode, I'm using the hashtag stronger together because I think that is key in not only the systemic education of FASD, the systemic awareness, and especially you and I, we, we both, and as well as the rest of, of you know, our listeners and the rest of everyone, we know that the passing of the FASD Respect Act, HR 4151 S2238, is going to be a key component in helping us to be stronger together because the government will recognize FASD as a diagnosable developmental disability. I've had Susan Shepard Carlson say that more times on this podcast than, than I can count. And I think that's so critical, you know, but to hear that states are doing that individually, that gives me hope. And I pray that it gives hope to other families in different states knowing, hey, this state, they got that, you know, they were able to get this as a, a developmental disability diagnosis. So I'm, I'm just so thankful you're saying all of this information, Dr. Waite, it, it really is just going to be so helpful to our listeners, especially to those who write in and email us and, and say, I need help. What do I do? This episode, listen to this episode. This is a great, great plan a great, great start. And like you said, you get the stepping stone diagnosis and then you start. There's two more things I just wanted to stick in really quick. Natalie, Absolutely. Before I forget. Absolutely. One, one is we were talking about the word disability. And I feel that we should not call these fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Um, I feel that we should begin looking at this as a neurodevelopmental disability not a disorder, neurodevelopmental disability associated with prenatal alcohol exposure. I think that's easier for a, a, a mother who drank during pregnancy before she knew she was pregnant or during it because she had alcoholism to hear. I think it's easier for me as a person who has challenges in development and behavior 
to hear that I have these areas that are a disability because my mother drank during pregnancy. Um, and also, I think we need to begin to look at this. We're always drawing this line that we call ideologic. This causes this. So the alcohol caused this disability. Yeah, that's what FASDs are about. But the big, when you get out in the world, people aren't just using alcohol. And most of the kids that have an FASD that are not diagnosed are kids that were born that were positive to substances. And most of the kids that come into foster care, we don't know about the alcohol. We never find out about the alcohol. Kids who are adopted, they might know that they were exposed to cannabis or to opiates, which have some effect on development, but nothing near like alcohol. And when you said a send a urine tox on a baby after they're born, nobody screens for alcohol. They're just screening for basic drugs. So I, I really think we need to begin to open this up um, and, and begin to see this for what it is. The only reason we're trying to get this diagnosis is to get the kid help. And when we get stuck on, was there alcohol? Do we have it confirmed? How much did the mom drink? These questions that are like trying to put your hand into a dark cave and find a bear, it, it's, not, it's not practical. So when are we gonna get practical and begin giving a name, even if we're not certain of the cause that we can begin getting services for that doesn't fit, that, that doesn't fit the criteria for autism or intellectual disability? What, can we, what, can, what is this gonna be called that we can get this child on a path if we don't have a history of prenatal alcohol exposure, but we have high suspicion for it, or if they have the same kind of pictures of difficulties that kids with FASDs have. Because right now, kids with FASDs fall through those cracks. Many are diagnosed with autism, some have intellectual disability, um, most of them have ADHD, but they're not fitting into that disability criteria. So there's something missing here, and, and I think that's a job that we need to take up as people on the front lines, as parents and of children with a disability and get together with the researchers because it's easier to make a diagnosis in a research tower and make the criteria in a research tower. But when you're on the front and you're working with the family and the parents are crying in front of you, you know, where are we going here? <laughs> so I think that's really important. Next piece, um, we know research is increasingly showing the importance of choline. That is a, something you can take as a vitamin, all right? And we know from animal studies and now more recently from human studies that if you take, if you're exposed to choline, even though you're exposed to alcohol, that tends to lessen the effects of the alcohol exposure on the developing brain. So Carl Bell, um, may his memory be a blessing, um, was a psychiatrist who worked in Chicago, and we did a presentation in Maine together, and he recently passed, but he went around into the, um, looked at the, the prenatal vitamins that are sold and how much choline is in them, and he did a study just looking at the different brands, and there's nowhere near the amount of choline that might help prevent this. It's a no-brainer for prenatal vitamin companies to start adding more choline in their vitamins. You know, we're not talking about like overdosing someone, we're just talking about adding like 50% more maybe. And even may, this might even 
help with just ADHD. We don't know yet, but I saw a study that just came out recently about that. So this is not like playing guinea pigs on people. This is just like giving a little bit more vitamin C <laughs> um, it, it, with no bad side effects, but maybe even just being a cure, <laughs> a way of ameliorating the effects of alcohol. Dr. Wade, I'm so glad you're bringing up choline because last year we had Dr. Jeffrey Wozniak on FASD Hope talking not only about, you know, his, his experiences, but that choline study and the choline studies that are happening now. And that if you listeners go back into uh, last year's episode, you'll find our, our conversation with Dr. Wozniak. That is important. And that's huge. That is huge right there. Um, so if your child is eligible for either one of the studies or to, to learn more about how choline can help, also, because we're talking about, we, we also need to, you and I both know, we need to end the stigma. If you are a, a mother who is pregnant and you consumed alcohol before you realized it, you know, the choline effects, like you're saying, Dr. Waite, can help, you know, reverse some of those disability effects caused by alcohol. So again, if you're in any of those categories, that choline, that information about choline and how choline can help prenatal exposure. That is, is key. So along with our program notes, we'll attach some of those links to that information. If that is applicable to you, if that's something you want to learn more about. So I'm really glad you're bringing that up, Dr. Waite. I apologize. Please, please, please finish your statement. The last thing too, I would like to just bring up Natalie, uh, you probably have already had Christy Petranko on. Yes. Uh, yes. If you had and she does a lot of work with families on the Families Moving Forward program. Yes. And she is one of the people that I love because she really focuses on interventions across lifespan. Yes. And we did have, actually, it was about a year ago, we had Dr. Petrenko on and, and she, we actually recently shared their recruiting families now for her FMF study, which is done in, in Rochester. Um, so yeah, we Correct. will, we'll attach that link as well, because uh, yes, Dr. Petrenko, she's wonderful, not only in her, you know, the Mount Hope Family Center, uh, but in following up you know, and developing, uh, you know, programs and developing things like the app that can help families. So I'm so thankful you're mentioning that, Dr. Wade. So Dr. Wade, any final thoughts about what's coming up for you in 2022 before we wrap up this wonderful, wonderful conversation? Well, yeah, in my Arkansas um, presentation, I started it with a picture of, of a spiral staircase. And, you know, we were talking about knocking on doors and not knowing where the door leads. I, I think the image of a spiral staircase is good for us to think about because oftentimes you just see the next step or two ahead of you. You don't see because the staircase is turning as you go forward, you can't see what's ahead of you. Um, and it kind of puts us on the step. Where are we at? Where's that child developmentally at right now? Let's, what are we going to do for the next step? How are we going to move there, right? You know, we were talking about stepping stones. The other piece to this is, again, power of families working together. Wouldn't it be great if we had a family navigator program like is present for lots of other disabilities? Meaning that a family calls you over your Christmas holiday 
And you can say, here's the person that helps people access services and will guide you through the maze. So that's something that would be really cool if we could get that going in the next year or two. And maybe that's something we can work out with FASD United. But I think those kind of roadmaps, and probably they would have to be something done lo- at a local level, um, is stuff that we need to build in. We need to have that pathway. Um, because like you said, it's not like you could just send a child out who has a diagnosis of autism and everything falls in place. So to me, when I go into the office every day, I, I try to just focus on where I'm at now. What are the next things? I mean, I have an idea what we need to think about in the future. And I drag the future in as little prescient as I am. But I think staying where we're at and, and focusing on the next step is a really important part, uh, goal for us to do. Because staying with, with the child and where the family's at is the single most important thing we're doing. Otherwise, all this other stuff is just knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. And and that is a great reminder, Dr. Waite, that on this journey, we, we can't think too far ahead because we know FASD, you know, as, as a brain-based whole body disability, it is that spiral staircase that we don't know what's coming up around the corner, you know, and, and it looks different for every child, every teen, every individual. So staying in the present, thinking about how are we going to get through this in the next step, and then just, just taking that pace uh, is a great reminder, Dr. Waite. This has been an amazing conversation, Dr. Waite. I, I hope this is a conversation that our listeners will repeatedly listen to because you can glean so much information. I will attach Dr. Waite's e- email, uh, work email, as well as information about the clinic where Dr. Wade is at. If, if anybody is interested in, in learning more or getting in, in, in touch with Dr. Wade. So, you know, Dr. Wade, uh, I like to end our episodes on hope because we really need hope on this journey. It's a lifelong journey. And this whole conversation for me has given me a tremendous, it's been like a hope booster for me, Dr. Wade. And I'm just so appreciative of you and the work that you're doing and being on the front lines of FASD. What words of hope can you share with our listeners uh, that they can take on their journeys and that will help them keep making those steps forward? Well, I, I think all the stuff we've talked about kind of points toward where I get hope from. To me, I think, you know, we try to bring the best we can bring of ourselves to every day. And um, if you focus on all the terrible things that are happening, it's pretty discouraging. But um, my experience has taught me that I can bring the best I can bring to every day and go home with that, never knowing whether what I brought there is going to do something wonderful in the future or not. If I thought that it was going to do something wonderful, I probably could never continue working because I see so many times that it doesn't work out. But I like that not knowing. That not knowing is a good place to be because I can bring in what I can do. I can, you know, try to heal as best I can. But ultimately, um, things are going to happen the way they're going to happen. And when they happen that way, I'll do it again (laughs) Um, because I always have trust that things are going to work out. And I will do my best to make them work out in a way that is positive. When they don't work out positive, I will be there 
similarly, you know, because sometimes that's what we can do is just be there. Amazing words of hope. And I love how you shared that not knowing that's okay. There's actually hope in not knowing because it could be a very good thing that's on the horizon. Dr. Douglas Waite, thank you so much for being on FASD Hope. Yes, thank you for having me, Natalie. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.